Well, good morning. Let me go on record. I don't like Ohio State. Never have. This is not a red shirt in case the lights don't reveal that. It's orange. Should have worn blue. I was in the hotel lobby in Du Bois last night or this morning and uh, getting a cup of coffee and there was somebody in a red shirt and somebody in a blue shirt. Guy in the blue shirt looked at the guy in the red shirt as they locked eyes. Enemies this morning. And he said, what are you looking at? I thought I was going to have to preach my sermon right there. But I made my way on. I have no idea if they tore up the lobby or not. I had to go to church. I had to go to Hyde and take a look at what's going on there. There's a passage in the Old Testament that reveals what God is looking for in each of our lives. Some of you think the Bible's boring, and uh, if it is, you can let Pastor Stephen know about that after I leave. I really don't want to be accused of making it boring today, but in 1 Samuel 16, kind of an obscure passage, but something that you might be familiar with, and if you're a guest here, come back next week, hear the real pastor. I'm just a guest from Indiana, the real Indiana, not Indiana, Pennsylvania, but really from Indiana. But anyway, I'm here to talk to you today and ask God to speak to us about what God is looking at or what God is looking for. People size people up all the time. You're doing that to me right now, and I'm doing it to you, by the way. It's mutual. What do they look like? Do they look like they play the part? Sometimes in election season, they look like a politician, which isn't a compliment anymore. Or they look presidential because they stand perfectly. Or maybe even they come out to the edge of the stage and can feel your pain, if you know what I mean. But all this stuff comes in image. And people are interested in their image more than we are what's way deep down inside, perhaps even what God is looking for, and that is a heart that will be true to him. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, a key verse out of this chapter, it just simply says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. It's on the screen. Would you mind joining me and reading it aloud? The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Lord, this is your truth. And we, in this place, in this time, are your people. Whether we're here for the first time or we've been here since the doors were open, maybe even in the former sanctuary, Lord, we ask, we pray, we plead, would you speak to us? And would you not just speak to us, but by speaking to us, would you change us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's helpful to look at in a passage of Scripture that your English Bible will say that this is the place where David will be appointed king of Israel. Caption right above the verses of 1 Samuel 16 might say that in your English Bible. But there's something about studying Scripture that we often don't quite do justice to. And and one of those errors that we make is we want to see how this relates to us. We want to see how this uh, means something for us. We, we want something in our entertainment, consumerism kind of culture. I'm leaving town after this sermon if I make you mad already. But in our entertainment, consumerism kind of culture, we want to see, what's, this, what's in this for me? 
And one of the habits that we need to get into as Christ followers, if we are, or if we're considering that even today by accepting him as our Savior, asking forgiveness of our sins, is to ask this question, and that is, what does this say about God? Not how does it relate to me. That's not the first question we should ask. The first question is, we should ask, how does this reveal God to me? What does this say about God? Because the Bible's not about me, it's about God. And it relates to me, it will speak to me. God has always promised to always do his work through his word. That's why it should always be proclaimed in churches all over the world. In Isaiah 55:11, it just simply says that the, the Lord does his work through his word and it will never return void or in good Hebrew empty. There's always something in God's word to learn. There's always something about God that we need to discover. And so one of those questions is, what does this say about God? The second question is, or a second kind of a habit to get into, is to look for the ways that God is revealing himself. Look, look at what it's actually saying, not about him, but what he actually does. And, and then find out later how that applies to each of us. And so in taking a look at this, we, we ask... What does it say about God? And then is, is there something repeating in a chapter? Is there something recurring? Is there, is there an image or is there a word? And it literally does involve chicken scratches, if you will, just keeping track of things that might be God instead of me. How, how many times do those appear? There's a word like that in 1 Samuel 16. In 1 Samuel 16, there's a word that's repeated eight times. Eight times in one chapter. That's significant. It's a God word, and it's actually some Hebrew, so you can impress your coworkers or your classmates or maybe even somebody at dinner today at Dutch Pantry. I'm not sure where. But anyway, uh, something that you might uh, consider is this word in Hebrew. I'll try to pronounce it correctly, but I speak English more than Hebrew. It's the word ra'ah. It's R-A-A-H in Hebrew, if we could put that into English. Raw. It's not how sirloin stockade blew your steak and made it raw. That's not the one. But it is pronounced raw, and it is something that stands for this. God sees what you need, and he knows precisely how to answer that need. It doesn't mean that he always will. It doesn't mean that he will answer it the way that you and I want it to be answered. But it does mean that God sees something that is needed. He is very aware of that, and he has the ability and the power to meet that need. Now, just to make sure that your neighbor's still awake this morning, it'd probably be okay after I say that one more time just to say amen at the end of it. Are you ready? God sees what you need, and he has the ability and the power to meet that need. Amen. Amen. Some of you got it. We're going to warm up here in just a second. One of the things that God is looking to provide, he knows that we need this, he knows that it's needed in Israel in 1 Samuel 16, is the word hope. Anybody need hope this morning? Anybody in the United States of America, even perhaps in the midst of a judiciary committee this week, need any hope? Somebody's lying. Might as well just call it what it is. I don't know who it is, but somebody is. In the midst of chaos, in the midst of controversy, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of things that even dwell inside of ourselves, we don't have to look at D.C. We can just look at Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. In the midst of everything that you and I go through on a daily basis, we need God's hope. We need his hope. And Samuel needs God's hope in 1 Samuel 16. 
He needs God's hope, and God sees that he needs hope, and he kind of starts the passage out addressing Samuel, and and basically says, how long are you going to keep complaining? How long are you going to keep looking at the answers that humans offer, and when are you going to look for the answers that I can offer? And so you have this whole thing where the Israelite kingdom, the, the kingdom of Israel, is in shambles because of Saul's leadership. Saul was supposed to be a person who followed God. Saul was supposed to be a person who had the heart of God. Saul was supposed to be someone who would, in, in God's instruction, lead the nation of Israel. And he messed up. I'm not talking about 21st century America. I'm talking about 6,000 years ago in the nation of Israel. This human king decided to do what humans do. He got selfish. He got self-centered. He started making his own rules, and the whole country paid for it. And Samuel is lamenting Israel's condition. Saul had messed up so much that God removed him as king in 1 Samuel 15, the chapter before this one. And Samuel's having a pity party. Who are we going to get to be the king? What if they're worse than Saul? What happens if somebody else takes his place and they're not godly? And then you find this story unfolding. But before we get into the weeds of the story, take a look at the fact that Israel had no hope. They weren't following God like they should have. They weren't being led for God like they should have been. They they even had this prophet Samuel who is lamenting their condition. And God comes into the midst of that and is ready to provide what's needed. And that is the hope of a new beginning. Anybody need a new beginning? I have no idea what you're going through, unless you're a guest here today for the first time. I've preached here before, but it's been about five years ago or so, perhaps even longer. I, I have no idea. I'm a guest as well. I have no idea to predict how or what you're going through. But I do know that God is a giver of hope. I do know that God is ready and willing to offer you a new beginning personally. I do know that he's here to offer his forgiving grace regardless of what you've done and who you've been. I know that he is able to restore relationships that are broken here today. I know that as you've prayed for healing, that God still heals. I know that he can render his grace over an entire area, an entire nation, his entire world. He really does have the whole world in his hands. It's not just a childhood Sunday school song. He's got you and me, brother, you and me, sister, in the grip of his hand. I serve a God who offers hope. You say, well, that's for easy for you to say. I love it when preachers come in and put a mask on and just kind of tell us that everything's hunky-dory. I, I, I personally don't think that everything's hunky-dory. I could probably prove it on any given Sunday morning on your way to church. Uh, Sunday mornings are the worst, worst day of the week for families, especially Christian families. Worst day. You don't get to go to brunch like the rest of the world. You got to go to church for crying out loud. I'm the youngest of six. I grew up in Phoenix part of my childhood. There are water restrictions there. We started taking baths on Saturday night in that 1,500 square foot parsonage that where my dad and mother pastored a local church. I got the bathtub last and the water did not get changed. I'm still... I'm still trying to get crud off of my body from my brothers. Because my brothers were smelly. 
And they still are. It's stinky. They don't look right. Thankfully, God's looking at something else other than their stinking humanness. But anyway, here we are, all the way to church, having fights, picking on each other, poking each other, telling each other that, that you know, you were adopted and you really aren't part of our family and all. Blaming everything on their little brother. And then we hit this door called the church. Hi, good morning. Welcome to Hyde Wesleyan Church. So glad to see you. Isn't the Lord good? Isn't this a wonderful day? Didn't sound like a wonderful day back in the car, Dad, when you were yelling at me. You don't have to be phony. You say, well, that's great. You've got hope and I don't. Let me tell you something. There have been days when I didn't have any hope. You say, were you suicidal? No, I wasn't suicidal, but some people are. And God redeems that. He, he, he pulls that back and offers us new life. That'd be a good place to say amen. amen. Don't be weary or leery about what people go through on a daily basis. Almost to the day, five years ago, I lost my wife to cancer. It was a train wreck. There's no mask. There's no cheese ball smile. Do I place my hope in Jesus? Yes, it's what got me through. I still struggle once in a while wondering what in the world, how did that happen? I have an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old at the time. Now they're 24 and 22. God has spared their lives. It's a miracle that they're still following Jesus after a tragedy like that. She was 44. I had pastor friends that came to me. Not Stephen. He's smarter than this. Pastor friends that came to me and said, you know, if I was called to ministry and I, I served as a local church pastor and I served the denomination like you have for 12 years, I, I think I'd quit. I think I'd curse God and die, one of them told me. place my hope in situations down here. I, I love David Crowder's song. I, I love the song that you and I sang this morning already. That my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Crowder's song is, all of my hope is in Jesus. Thank God. Thank God my yesterday's gone. I can't do anything about yesterday. I'd like to change it once in a while. I'd like to forget it once in a while. Anybody need hope? I remember my daughter probably speaking the most truth that anyone ever has in my life. She's 16. She just lost her mom. About two or three days later, I'm having a moment with my washing machine. You ever have one of those? You should. I recommend it. Why, was it broken? No, I was doing laundry. My son was a freshman in college, and he hadn't done laundry since he left the 1st of August. And here I am in November doing laundry. And I'm kind of a doer. I got up early. I couldn't sleep, and I'm, I'm a mess. I'm having a moment with my washing machine. God, you have to tell me who to be. You have to tell me what to say. I don't know what to do. I had a dream the night before that we, that we had this unity candle thing. You know, you're doing ceremonies. I don't know why we do them, but we do them all the time. And we take these two outside candles that represent our individual lives. And we tie it and light this one in the middle. I had a dream that I had that candle on a saw. And I was trying to cut it in half because I felt like I was half of who I was before I lost her. But I couldn't cut the flame in half. I don't own a table saw, okay? My daughter looked at me. And she said, Dad, I'm sorry. I know it hurts. And I miss her too. 
By the way, didn't she just do what you go around and tell everybody to do? Didn't she give her life to Christ? Didn't she dedicate her life to Christ? Didn't she serve? She was a social worker in the state of Indiana, trained over 8,000 therapists every year. Didn't she serve as a witness for Christ out in secular society? Didn't she do, didn't she just go to heaven? There's some things that I think once in a while that probably are best that they don't hit my lips, and these did not hit my lips, but I did think this. I looked at her and smiled. I said, thank you. And in my mind, I was saying, shut up. You're 16. What do you know? (laughs) There's no mask. No facade. My hope is in Jesus. Don't you want your wife back? Yeah, there are days that I do. Have you moved on? Actually, in about 32 days, I'm going to be married again. Anybody need a new beginning? Anybody need some hope? Do you understand that God sees? And he has the ability and the power to give you hope. He sees it for Israel. He sees it for you. He sees it for me. It doesn't fix everything, but I can get beyond some things. I I can, like him, transcend a few things. I don't need to continue to play racquetball off the curb because of life situations. I don't need to stay in that defeated state. I need to place my hope in Jesus. The old gospel writer would say it this way, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures, they're laid out way beyond the blue. What are you hoping in today? You hoping in Happy Valley? You hoping in Jesus? God knows. He sees. He's able to provide a new beginning. He's able to provide that for you, for your family, for your school, for your workplace, for your church. I serve at this point in time with Wesleyan Investment Foundation. It's a savings and loan. I I think this church has uh, done some banking issues with the Wesleyan Investment Foundation in the past and maybe even currently. I I don't judge things that way. But I, I literally go around the country. I work with about a dozen churches a year. I work with a district superintendent, and this is what the conversation sounds like. I'm looking for churches that have high potential to be more effective for Jesus Christ, even though they've had great days in the past, phenomenal days in the past, even though they're reaching people right now, that there's something that God wants to do in some church like that. Do you have any like that? And don't give me any that are about ready to close. I come to you as a complimentary kind of service, a ministry of the foundation. Your church pays nothing for me to be here. Some of you are going to say, thank the Lord we didn't pay him for that today. I go in and I meet with leaders and we talk about what the church can do well, what the church might need to improve on. We don't try to label everything that's wrong. We don't try to say, hey, you know what? You probably ought to be more up in Clearfield than in Hyde. We don't get into that stuff. We get into the ways that God has gifted you and the ways that he wants to use you as his hands and feet, the body of Jesus in Clearfield County and beyond. It's something that we just simply spend time praying and thinking. And some of the time it's a little uncomfortable. 
uncomfortable. But I'm here to tell you that even though you have a rich past, God has a hopeful beginning for you each and every day if you're willing to hide Wesleyan Church. But I got to tell you something, in the midst of that, there's risk. In the midst of that, there's change. I, I, had, I marvel. The first time I visited this congregation, this church, I think it was for a district event, and I was a, a muckety-mucket headquarters, and I was trying to find the church for the first time, and, and it took me to the old building. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. Some of you do. And then I had to wind my way down on the river drive and find this place, and I drove up and I said, man, was that a huge change. <laughs> Man, did somebody take a risk? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that somebody had the guts to say that we can be more than 50 people. That we can be more than reaching 100 people. Praise the Lord that you have that kind of courage in your heritage. Will you have that kind of courage going forward into the 2020s? God's not done with Hyde Wesleyan. Why? Because you showed up, Jim? No. Because God has never been done with Hyde Wesleyan Church. Amen? But God is not looking at a piece of property. He's not looking at what your parking lot looks like. He's not looking at your beautiful sanctuary. You know what God's looking for? He's looking for hearts of people. That have a heart for him. That have a heart for the laws. Uh, I was telling the leaders of your church this week, uh, two or three times, if not 27, sometimes we've celebrated our foundness, that we've been found by Jesus so much that we have forgotten our lostness. What it means to be lost. You say, I don't, I don't want to remember my lostness. I, I get it. I know that God forgives and forgets. But sometimes we need to get a grip on the fact that there's a loss that Jesus experienced. It's called his crucifixion. That there's a loss that sometimes we'll experience. It's also called persecution or perhaps to the point of crucifixion for following Jesus. We need to understand and celebrate our foundness church. But we also need to remember that there are people all over this place that know their lostness whether they understand it or not and we need to be compelled to continue to invite to continue to witness to continue to share the hope of Jesus anybody need hope in your area God sees that it's needed and he has the ability to provide it he's also willing and ready and able to provide wisdom to provide wisdom Wisdom that's needed in 1 Samuel 16. Wisdom that's needed in your household. Wisdom that's needed in your career. Wisdom that's needed in your finances. Wisdom that's needed in your church service. Wisdom that's needed in your entire church ministry. God will provide wisdom. But sometimes like us, Israel did their own thing. They did their own thing and they had colossal disasters. They got selfish. I've already talked to you about Saul's selfishness, but... But Israel as a nation got selfish in 1 Samuel 4. That's one instance. We could go through a bunch of them. I'm just going to give you two. 1 Samuel 4, they have this thing going on. They're not playing the Buckeyes. They're playing the Philistines. The Philistines literally pummel the Israelites just about every time they play. Just about every battle they have, they lose to the Philistines. Oh, those Philistines. Oh, here they come again. 
Well, on this particular occasion, you think it's boring, read it for yourself. They lost 3,000 foot soldiers in one day. 3,000, one day. Philistines are pretty good. They decide, the Israelites do, that they're going to bring God into the battle. Now, God was already with them, you understand, but they're going to bring some kind of physical symbolism of God's presence. In their day, it would be God himself, and it's a little bit of a stretch to say that. I get that, but it really does represent God. It represents his provision. We call it, the Bible calls it, the Ark of the Covenant. They decide, we're not going to get beat by the Philistines again. We're bringing in the big guns. We're bringing in the Ark of the Covenant, and we're putting it right in the battle camp. And God will help us. And the Israelites roared. I mean, it was like whiteout again on Saturday night. I mean, they're going crazy. And they roar, God is here to help us. And the Philistines hear the roar. And they get a little scared. Some God has entered their camp, they say. And yet Philistines are no cowards. They're no weaklings. They simply say, we will fight like men. So bring it on. It doesn't say bring it on, sorry. But that's their attitude. And so the next day, they go to battle. You would think, you would think that God, because his presence is so favorable, because his presence is so powerful, because he wants only good stuff to happen to people, even though they're goofing around with the Ark of the Covenant, they had no permission whatsoever to fool around with God's presence, and neither do we. They bring the Ark in, symbolizing God's presence, kind of a rabbit's foot theology. Magic will happen. God will help us. We will beat the Philistines, they got pummeled again. The Philistines again. You'd think it would be written a different way. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers in that battle. Read it for yourself. I thought he'd help them win. Here's the thing. They disobeyed. They paid the price. They also lost the ark of God. Why? Because they wanted to do their own thing. Yeah, but we have our own wisdom. We, we, we have our own way of doing things. We, we, we know what's right. No, only God has true wisdom. Only God is wisdom. And anything that you and I might know about anything is from God. We need to keep that straight. He also takes a look at them and they needed to get their own wisdom again. And in 1 Samuel 8, they have the king leading them. They have the king of kings. They have God himself being their king. Capital K. They decide they want to be like everybody else. They want to be like the, the Joneses and, and, and the Smiths and, I don't know, here, the Yoders or the Bontragers. I'm not sure. They want to be like everybody else. They want to be like the Amalekites and the Kyrgyzites and the Termites and every otherites, all the Aedites that are in the Old Testament. They, we want to be like, they've got a king. We want to be, give us a king, give us a king. We want a king. We got, and God allowed them to have a king. It doesn't say that. Read it in 1 Samuel 8 and then put a little feeling into it, of course. They want a king. God allows them to get a king. Who's their king? Saul. That didn't work out very well. He's removed in 1 Samuel 15. Here's the deal. God 
is willing and has the ability to give you the wisdom that you need. In James, it simply says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for it. What do we do? We Google it. Yeah, I did a little research. Did a little research. 2017. What did people search for? Search engines all over the world. It's kind of hard for me to believe, but 3.5 billion searches per week. 2017. Search engines all over the world. That that number just blows my mind. 3.5 billion a week. God and the scriptures were not in the top 100. I'd, I'd love for you to have an assignment this afternoon after you watch the Eagles or the Steelers or after you pray because you're godly people this afternoon. I, I would love for you to have an assignment. Just Google God and Google maybe even 1 Samuel 16 and throw the rhythms of all the research that people do in, in Clearfield County, Pennsylvania. Throw them off. Say, why are they searching for God? Maybe Hyde Wesleyan knows something about searching for God. Just throw them off. Just do me a favor this afternoon. But But the top 100, it didn't show up in all of 2017, in all of the world's searches. You know what number one was? How do I look better as a person? Appearance. Image. Number one. Is there anything wrong with looking good? No. There's not. But God's not looking at that. He's looking at your heart. That's good news. You know why? I know, some of you wonder if somebody else has, everybody has a heart. (laughs) Not everybody has the right nose. Not everybody has the right hair. Not everybody has the right shoes. Not everybody smells right. Not everybody talks right. Everybody has a heart. That's good news. Because God's looking for hearts that follow him. It pulls us into the wisdom that's needed. He's already given wisdom in appointing Samuel as prophet, eventually priest and king over Israel in 1 Samuel 3. But here we are in 1 Samuel 16. The whole kingdom's without a king. And they're in shambles. Nobody knows who's going to be the next king. And God is going to talk to Samuel. This is an amazing thing. You thought instant messaging was cool. Check this out. Samuel is there and there is this line, this line of Jesse where God's next king will come to Israel. The sons of Jesse is where the kingdom of God will be ruled from. Jesus is actually in the physical line of Jesse, the stump or the root of Jesse. But regardless, Jesse has eight sons in this particular case. And those eight sons come in before Samuel, and God is going to relate to Samuel. You'll you'll know the one. I'll tell you which one to pick. They bring in Eliab, first of all. Eliab looks like a king. He's mighty. He's got war experience. He is a great leader. He doesn't have a six-pack. He's got a 12-pack. I'm not talking about anything that comes in cans. He looks like a king. God says to Samuel, he's not the one. Move him aside. They bring in Athenabad. Athenabad comes in. He looks like a king. He's not the one. Move him on. They bring in Shammah. He's not the one. Move him on. Another king. Another king. Another king. Another king. No, they don't look like kings. They're just sons of Jesse. Move them on. He's not the king. Hey, Jesse, you got any other sons? Well, kind of. What do you mean, kind of? Well, kind of. There's this punk out in the shepherd's field tending sheep. He can't be the king. 
He, there's no way he's the king. He, he doesn't look like a king. He's got good features, the Bible says, but he doesn't appear to have the presence of a king. I don't know what kings look like. I don't know if they throw their shoulders back. I don't know if they, they somehow you know, have uh, not multiple chins. I don't know what they look like. I, I'm not sure what they look like. But David didn't look the part. As a matter of fact, he didn't smell very good. He's been out with sheep, you understand. Bring him in. Shoot yourself. They bring him in. God says to Samuel, that's the one. Eliab, Abedadab, Shammah, and the other four brothers are off in the corner with their arms folded. This is where it started. Mark it down. 1 Samuel 16. Seriously? <laughs> Seri- you're serious. Serious? You're serious. Yeah, I'm serious. You know why? Because David is a man after God's own heart. I personally think on a lighter side of things that they chose David because he's the only name they could announce. I mean, who can announce a Benadab? <laughs> King of David. Who's going to say it? King Abe? I don't, I don't know. David. Let's just go with David. No. It's because he had a heart that resembled God's heart. That's what God's looking for. He doesn't look mighty. He doesn't look like a great warrior. He is the greatest earthly king that Israel would ever have. Did he mess up? Yes. And you could prove historically, a little bit of an antidote, a little bit of a side note here, but you could prove historically that Israel's never been the same since his night with Bathsheba, ever militaristically as powerful as they were before Bathsheba. To this day, that's a whole other sermon, the price you'll pay for sin. But here they are. Now, with a king, where God's wisdom, God's wisdom took over. It wasn't what somebody looked like. It wasn't somebody who had the mighty track record as a warrior at that point in time. This punk from the field would be the king of Israel. You know why? Because he had a heart for God. God is looking for hearts who will follow him. Your church has a heart. Is your church willing to have a heart that will follow God? No matter what? Well, we'll follow him until, until what? You have limits. You have preferences. Well, there's only one way that you... Do church. I mean, you can't just let anybody into church. Think about that. Have you always looked right? Have you always talked right? Do you even think right to this day? I know, I know. I'm glad I'm leaving town too. (laughs) Do you smell right? What's your heart like? God knows your heart. And he is able to change your heart. And if he changes your heart, he changes all of you. You see, in our culture, we think everything happens in the head. Actually, that's not accurate. Everything happens from your heart. You don't have a heart, you don't live. You don't have a heart for God. You can't honor God. We think all kinds of things will save us. Only hearts that are given to Christ 
can save us. So it's high time. It's high time, Hyde. Might as well just seal the deal here today. It's high time for you to know that Christianity is more than warm in the seat. It's high time. There should be no need to announce that you need help for Harvest Fest. Fill all of those needs before you leave here today. It's not that difficult. You don't understand. I don't have that. Neither do I. I'm a member of a local church. I volunteer. There's going to be discipleship classes that come up that are more serious than anything you've ever done. Nobody's tailgating to learn how to become like Jesus. I, I, I drew, flew into State College Friday. I could not believe how many RVs were parked out there for a game that wasn't even going to start for 48 hours. How about tailgating for Jesus the next time a discipleship class comes up and spend the night here? I can't wait to learn more about Jesus. How about it? When are you going to get serious? I can tell you this, Hyde. When you get serious, God gets serious. He's already serious. He's just waiting. You say, we're serious. Look at us. We've accomplished a lot. We're the best church in the county. We're, we're, we've got all these pennies and all these kids. And, every, and I celebrate every piece of that. And you're right. You do have a good pastor. And you have had good pastors. And you'll continue to have good pastors. So keep loving them and keep praying for them. And keep lifting up their arms and keep supporting them. And they love you back, believe me. You know, pastor-to-pastor talk. Sometimes I hear the talk from pastors about their congregation. These two folks, Stephen and Jess, love you. And speak very well of you. And that says a lot. So how about it? Do you have the heart of God? That's what God's looking for. What does that mean? I don't know. I had somebody in the church that I pastored to want to argue about carpet. Pretty sure that's not in the Bible. Carpet. My tendency is to say we're not doing carpet. You want to argue about the color of carpet? No carpet there. It's not an eternal issue. I don't even know if that's a debate here. If it is, I just stepped into it right there. I don't care. I want to know what God's looking at. I want to be what God's looking at. How about you? There's good news. Good news. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But God, God looks at the heart. Who are you? Be a person after God's own heart. Amen? Will you stand with me, please? We're going to take a moment. Some of you may need to go. That's fine. We're just taking a moment here. I'm wondering in this quiet hour, just a few moments, I'm, I'm going to open up the altar and we're going to pray. If you're here today and you would say, I need to follow Jesus, I need to accept him as my Savior, I would love for you to come to the front of this church. Nobody's going to embarrass you. There are people that will be here to pray with you and celebrate that decision in your life. It's the best decision you'll ever make to follow Jesus.
If you're here and you're a member of this board, you're a member of this staff, and you would say, Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Give us a heart for this community like we've never had before. Give us a heart for the world. We've got flags around our sanctuary, but break our hearts for the lost all around the world and across my street, my neighbors. Sometimes I don't even know their names, Lord, but I'll put pennies in a cup. Would you convince me and compel me to share my faith with those that I work with, those that I'm around, those that I even am a stranger to and just meet? If that's you this morning, I'm just going to pause for a second. It doesn't mean you have to be a leader here. It doesn't mean that you have to be somebody who's accepting Christ. But if you want to come and stand here and pray here, I'm just going to pray a prayer of blessing. And the prayer goes like this. Lord, give us a heart like yours. If that's you in this quiet moment. I know it's awkward. It's intended to be. If that's you, I want to give my heart. I want my heart to be in tune with God's heart. I want to be a person of God. I'm going to invite you to come and come to an altar or prayer of standing here, right here at the front. We're just going to wait for a minute. in this place, in this moment, we give ourselves to you. We want your work to be evident in our lives. We desire to be your hands and feet. Help us to stop being silent. Help us to stop being scared. Help us to share the good news that we've experienced with people all around us that need your hope. They need your wisdom. Thank you that somebody witnessed to us. Thank you for a church that's accepted us. Help us to go from this place and do likewise. Lord, would you create in every person here, whether they're up here at the front or whether they're standing right where they're at, would you create in every person here a heart that will follow you all of our days? That is our prayer. And I ask that you will do it with your power. You see what's needed. And you have the ability and the power to meet every need that we have as persons and that we have as a church. And so, Lord, I pray that you'll do it. Do it again. I know you've done it before. Would you do it again through the power of your Holy Spirit? We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. Go and be the church. Have a heart for God.